0: So it's a delight to be here and see so many people here interested in evolution. So today we're going to talk, something. we're going to talk a little bit about evolution and compassion, because compassion-focused therapy is rooted in an evolutionary understanding of affiliative processing, which I'll take you through. A little story first, I, I had a dog who used to like to chase people on bikes, uh, in the end it got so bad I had to take the bikes off him. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> Today, we're going to look at compassion as a motivation. There's a lot of discussions about whether compassion is a motivation or whether it's an emotion, so I should be arguing it's definitely an, a motivation. Looking at the evolution of mo- motivations and their regulators, and the evolution of attachment, caring, and compassion, right? So those are our three main topics. So I'll probably get through to the halfway through the second one, then we'll take a little break, and then we'll have a look at the issue of the evolution of attachment behavior in mammals in particular. So what motivations basically guide animals to life tasks, particularly survival and reproduction, as you heard this morning. All motives are run on algorithms for stimulus response. Okay, So for example, think of harm avoidance. The stimulus is some perception of danger, and then the response is some way of dealing with it. So, Usually that's to do with running away, but it could also be freezing or fainting. So you see the stimulus and then the response is triggered. Think of feeding, you see food and then you approach it. If you're a lion, you see an antelope. But once you see the antelope and you think lunch, you have to be able to hunt and kill it because it's not going to lay down in front of you and die. Status. Sex, all of these things, they're all basically the same stimulus response algorithms. That's basically what they are. And compassion is, again, a stimulus response algorithm. So, what is it then? Well, we can define compassion reasonably straightforwardly. And this is a very old uh, definition that goes right back to the Mahayana uh, Tibetan traditions, which is as a sensitivity to suffering in self and others. So, there's the first one that is just stimulus sensitivity. And then, with a commitment to try to relieve and prevent it. That's your response option. So that means you have these two psychologies to compassion because it's a basic motivation. The first is this preparedness to turn towards and sometimes even seek out suffering. And that the root of that, really, I'm going to argue is courage. Because you're moving towards something that can be difficult, painful, or even threatening. And the second element of the motivation system is this preparedness to work to alleviate and prevent suffering. Okay, so that's an important point because if you're gonna be a, a, psych- a, a therapist or counselor, whatever it is, having the intention to help people in pain, that's great, but if you don't study, you might not be very good at it. If I see somebody fall into the Thames and I think I must save them, so I jump in, but then I realize I can't swim, that's not terribly compassionate, that's just silly. So, now this gives rise to two other things, which is what we call the self-identity, which is a self who's going to be committed to not carelessly or purposely cause suffering, and that always leads to the, also leads to the golden rule, which is do unto others as will be done to you. So the core self-identity out of a compassion, when you're doing training in compassion, doing meditation in compassion, whatever it is, is that you're training yourself to focus on this way of living is to try to be helpful, not hurtful or harmful. And that can become a daily affirmation. If you're in the meditation things, you meditate each day, may I be helpful, not harmful. And in the work that we're doing with schools and businesses, we're now getting businesses interested in the moral dimensions of this aspect of compassion in business, which is as a business we want to be helpful, not harmful. And interestingly enough, a lot of the younger business people, particularly those under the age of forty, are very interesting very interested in, in, in using business to change the world because some of the younger business people recognize if you can forget politics. Politics are a waste of time. Where the big changes are gonna ha- happen is in business and in business ethics. And that's another story. <clears throat> so here we are in the process of compassion. Self-identity, this is the self I wanted to become, this is engaging with it, okay, that's the stimulus function, turning towards, and then the action function, that gives you rise to a compassionate mind, which has a whole physiological uh, structure behind it. And we also know that compassion can be self-focused, okay, i be compassionate to myself, I can deal with my own suffering, try to work out how best to help myself, I can be compassionate to others as well, but I can also be responsive to the compassion I receive from others. And the flow of compassion, actually, particularly in psychopathology and the work that we do, is very, very important. Some people can be very compassionate to others, uh, but they're very bad at being compassionate to themselves, they're very critical, they might even hate themselves. Whereas others can be the other way around, that they're very compassionate to themselves, but they're not very compassionate to others. You know, my name is Donald. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. So, um, is compassion just being nice? No. Is it taking pain away? No, it's about engaging with it and learning how to work with it. Is it submitting to the demands of others? No. Compassion is not submissive. It's assertive. Is compassionate love? No. Compassion's not about love. I love love. I mean, let me do a Donald. No one loves love like I love love, right? But if you're only compassionate to the people you love, that's going to be pretty limited. The strongest compassion is to the people who you do not like, who you struggle with. When you can show them, when you can show them a desire to relieve suffering in them, then we're talking. So you're creating the conditions for building the courage, wisdom, and dedication to face what we need to face and aspire to be at our best, guided by a concern for the well-being of others and ourselves and our impact upon them. And that's why... Compassion really also links to ethics. So here we go. Compassion is courage. You think of the medical staff that went to the Ebola crisis. These are people who have to override their own threat processing in order to help others. They're prepared to take risks to help others. And when it comes to our own suffering, again, in psychotherapy, you're asking people to move into their suffering rather than away. Many of our Uh, people that we work with are trying to avoid suffering. They don't want to have to engage with depression. They'd rather drink or whatever it is. So that's quite important of helping them be moving into, but finding the courage to heal, as it's sometimes said. And compassion has two action components. One is the soothing component, but the other is assertive. Now, if we have compassion and sensitivity to suffering the self and others with a commitment to try and, or if you have that as compassion, then what we know, tragically, is that humans also have a terrible dark side. Humans can be incredibly callous, as we will see. So this is a dimension that people can sort of move along, a dimension of compassion engagement, or actually turning off compassion. Our human brain is such it's quite easy to turn things on and off in the brain, actually. And it's quite easy to turn off Um, the desire for compassion. These are some of the dimensions. It's easier to be compassionate to people we like than people we don't, people who are similar to us. If you're a left-wing person, it's easier to be compassionate to other left-wing people than right-wing people. It's easier to be compassionate if we know what we're doing, if we're competent. It's easier to be compassionate if we're not too narcissistic. (laughs) Empathy helps with compassion, and also if compassion doesn't cost us too much. Uh, One of the problems with the immigrants, of course, is the idea that it's just too costly. And that turns us callous, frankly. There are also various roles in which you can see this dimension of compassion versus callousness. So take sexuality, which we had a brilliant talk just now. Some people engage sexually in a very compassionate way and are sensitive to the feelings and needs of the others. And it's a mutual joy for creation of pleasure. Whereas others, frankly, are callous. They're only interested in the person for the sexual pleasure. Parents we know also can vary on a dimension of <clears throat> how sensitive they are to their children, friends, all of these things. We also know that in cultures and in groups what generates compassion versus uh, callousness is culture. And there's no question at all, I think we've just had from the, uh, one of the United Nations uh, researchers here an argument that actually our politics Uh, particularly in the West, but particularly in this country, has become callous, and I'm very concerned about the way in which the creation of division and conflict, which some of our Western leaders are purposely producing in order to get themselves elected, are also uh, creating, uh, pushing this along a dimension of callousness. So... Core to, the, core to humans of the search for meaning, and one of the things that we, as humans, ask is why are we here, what are we doing here, and why do we suffer? And compassion explores the nature and causes of suffering in order to understand how to relieve and prevent it. And that means that we have to begin by exploring compassion by placing ourselves in the story of today, which is that we are evolved beings. We didn't arrive here On a jet plane, we have been evolving over many millions of years. Okay, come on. So, that means let's have a look at the flow of life. So, as was mentioned by Diane this morning, we can follow our evolutionary trail back from simple singular cells all the way up to where we are now, and we carry within us that genetic history. This is the chap that really brought to life this whole process by which those species move along the tree of life, they move along the flow of life, as a process of change by natural selection from the challenges of survival and reproduction. So here's a very simple diagram. There you are, survive, you have to survive, so you have to be able to feed yourself, of course, you have to be able to defend yourself, and you have to have some kind of shelter and uh, that will build phenotypes and motives for eating, motives for defending against predators and injury, and so on and so on. But then for reproduction, you have to be able to gain access to reproductive opportunities, and sometimes that involves various forms of competition, which again Diana talked on today, and alliances. The outcome of all of that is that you then end up with these motives, emotions, and attention mechanisms, the basic psychology of the mind, which are there really because the challenges of these two have created these various motivational systems. <clears throat> now, how are they created? Well, they're created by things called, well, it's not a thing, it's a, a double helix called a DNA, with these base pairs, okay, A to T and C to G. But what's interesting, and I put this in because some, I heard some of you talking about this today, I was asking questions about it. And that's to remember that, as uh, Richard Dawkins says, you know, DNA actually is passing on information. The DNA itself, as a physical entity, doesn't survive you, okay? that, because it's not a physical entity. What survives you is the information that it carries. So DNA carries information for building bodies and minds to carry it around. Right? It's an information recurring. That's what is being reproduced. We say genes are being reproduced. Well, in a way, they are. But what is actually being reproduced is the information for building uh, bodies. Now, bodies are short-lived, subject to disease, injury, and predation. And pain is part of the body's system of recognizing that it's had an injury or a malfunction. Now, the other thing that's very interesting about genes, and this is where epigenetics come on, is that we now know that on particularly C to G, there are these tags. They're like little switches. Imagine switches. And they can be turned on and off. And when they get turned on and off, they can literally turn that part of the protein information on and off so that part of the gene can get turned on and off and that's really quite interesting now This is important because there's more and more this is just a, a, a study recently Early warm rewarding parenting moderates the genetic contributions to callous unemotional emotional traits in childhood So this is a complicated study which was done on 600 twins <clears throat> but basically, the environments, e- even if you carry genetic risk for something, the environment in which you grow can have a huge impact on whether that is manifest or not. There's quite a lot of work now on depression, for example, both in animals and humans, that if you carry a genetic risk for depression, but you are brought up in a very warm, caring environment, your chances of manifesting the depression is much lower than if you're brought up in a uh, hostile, cold, or neglectful environment. So these are really very important. We don't really understand quite exactly where on the genes, or which genes, uh, these tags are being switched on and off. And in fact, we often find there are many, many genes contributing to one trait. But just to get you into this idea that, if you're thinking about evolution and genetics, Epigenetics is the game. That's where the game is at the moment in terms of how we might operate in environments, how we might influence parenting practices and so on and so on. So then we know we are gene built with evolved brains and we are designed to struggle, to survive, to want and to grasp and avoid pain. This is important because when you're working with your clients, You're helping them understand that all of that stuff, you know, the reason you've got two arms, two legs, and a brain and a mind that can go angry or sad or depressed, that's because those potentials have been built into you. It's not your fault. Your genes have built a brain for you. Your brain is being built by your genes for you, not by you. So this is the whole concept. that It's not really your fault about what's going on in your mind. However, it is your responsibility to try to work it out so that you can then do the compassion journey, which is to be sensitive to distress and try and do something about it. So there's the genes. There we are. Now, the second thing is that we have a form of consciousness that allows us to realize that life isn't going to go on forever. In fact, we're all born, we grow, decay, and die. We have about 25,000 days. I'm getting to the end of mine, unfortunately. And um, we also know we're susceptible to many diseases and injuries. (coughs) So, this is life really. Many uh, philosophers, Schopenhauer, Camus, all of these uh, thought that life was a bit of a tragedy, really. Camus thought life was absurd and it didn't really have any particular meaning. But whatever meaning you personally come to, the fact of the matter is that we are bits of DNA with some kind of consciousness bolted into it in some way. We are also socially constructed. So we often say to our clients, look, if I had been kidnapped as a three-day-old baby into a violent drug gang, right, so it's stolen from the hospital and I was brought up in this violent drug gang, and I'd seen violence, I'd had violence upon me, and my parents were often out of their brains on drugs, this version of poor Gilbert standing in front of you wouldn't exist. A totally different version would exist. Not only would I not exist with this these genetic genes turned on and off, but my the genetic tags, those things that you saw turned off, would be different. My brain would be different. We know neuroplasticity, that the way the brain actually forms its connections is related to context. Even my brain would be different. I am a version. You're all versions of yourself. There is no real you. There are hundreds, of maybe millions, of potential versions according to how your context would tweak your systems. So, this is very, very important because when you're working clinically, the person sitting in front of you may well be depressed or uh, uh, even be aggressive or whatever it is. But we just don't know what they might have been in a different context. And our job as psychotherapists is to change the version that they are. compassion focused therapy is interested in changing versions, not just changing cognitions or whatever. So the philosophy is basically, then, that all of us just find ourselves here with a brain and so forth, that we're all trying to deal with our tragedies. Probably every one of you in this room have got a story to tell that would make us cry about a parent who was lost or somebody who you cared about had a terrible illness or something bad has happened to you, whatever it is. So much of what goes on in our minds is not of our design. That's the key thing. <laughs> The ways in which we can begin to work with it, however, is through beginning to understand how our minds work, and that comes from both the personal process but also a scientific one. So let's have a look at some of these motives then. <clears throat> motives are the life tasks, really. They're the things such as protection and which I showed you before. But emotions are short-lived guides for motives, okay? These are body states. These create body states that focus action, so anger or anxiety that's related to what what's happening in your motives. For example, if I wanted to be a, I don't know, a famous football player, <clears throat> and I broke my leg, and therefore that dashed all my hopes of ever being the per- what I wanted to be, that's likely to have a much, much more serious consequence than if I'm happy to be a computer programmer sitting at a desk. Breaking my leg would be painful and unfortunate, but it won't bash the motives to be a football player. So the emotions really depend upon these things. Competencies are a different dimension of functioning. These relate to your abilities to perform an action. So birds need wings to fly, we need legs to walk, but we also have a whole range of psychological competencies that allow us to understand and think about the world in all kinds of ways. So things like our ability for reasoning, empathy, memory. These are what we call competencies. Okay? And then finally, we have the outputs, which are the behaviors. So when you're working clinically, then you're interested in these dimensions, all these dimensions, and don't let them fuse together. If you let them fuse together, then things get, things get very complicated. So sometimes we're helping people with motives. Sometimes we're helping them with emotions. Sometimes we're helping them with competencies, teaching them or helping them learn empathy. Or. One of the key things also is that we have a look into our... Um, emotions is that there are different ways in which you can think about emotions. Now, um, uh, Professor Solmer s- said earlier about this distinction between structure and function. <clears throat> now, you can look at the emotions in terms of these different micro-emotions, such as anger, anxiety, disgust, envy, and all it, Or you could look at them in terms of function, and they can be grouped in three basic functions. There's the function which is to do with what we call threat processing, that's the red one here, and that's for the avoidance of injury and responding to respo- uh, resource loss. And that has either a go, run away or fight, or a stop, immobilize, freeze, and faint. Then you have acquiring emotions. gives you a sense of joy and reward and pleasure, doing things, going out and doing things. But you also have emotions which are associated with slowing down and calming. This is called, This is related to what is called the rest and digest system. <clears throat> Now, this system, as I'm going to talk to you about a little later, is extremely important in working with people with uh, mental health difficulties because this system, which is linked to the parasympathetic system, and the parasympathetic system is linked to the evolution of caring behavior. That's the story after the break, so don't don't wander off. Um, This system... So a lot of Western society focuses on these two, but this is the one that's going to be really important. Now, they're all balanced, of course, because in reality these things don't exist separately in the mind. They're just neuronal patterns of firing, but they're quite useful to think of these two functions. So the function of threat, <clears throat> so that is to detect threats and then choose a response. The function of choosing a reward, re- re- resource-seeking, anticipating going out and, and making the good things happen for you, and then when, when, when you're not needing to achieve anything and you're not under any threat, you can just be content. Now, if we come to compassion then, if we think about compassion as a motive, this is the desire and intention to be helpful, not harmful. then it can't possibly be an emotion. And I'm sorry if my American colleagues are here, because we have arguments about this all the time. Because the emotion depends on the context. Because if you are a firefighter going into a burning house, okay, you're not in the state of calm awareness. I'm going into this burning house to save the family. I am at peace with myself. My heart is loving. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? So, if you're fighting injustice, that's anger. If you're sitting and consoling somebody who's dying, that's sadness. If somebody has benefited from what you've offered them. And they say, oh, I'm so much better. Thank you so much. That's joyful. And if you hurt somebody unintentionally, that is gives you guilt. Not shame. Shame is from the rank system. Shame is competition. Guilt is in the caring system. <clears throat> and the competencies for our empathy, distress, tolerance, reasoning, memory. Now, this is important because that determines how these are used. Because people often say, oh, well, empathy is the same as compassion. No, 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 no. The, it, empathy is a competency, and you can use it in any way. You can use it in many ways. If I'm empathic, I'm more likely to be successful at job interviews than if I'm not. If I'm empathic, I'm more likely to be able to <clears throat> chat up young ladies in a bar than if I'm not. Simply because I'm able to read signals and I'm able to attune into people, I'm much more likely to be manipulative if that's what I want to be. So empathy is a skill, it's not a motive. Uh, we, again, we have arguments with this all the time. So, there we are. This person who's here is very different to this state that's here. These are, these are going to be quite different emotions, aren't they really? Quite different emotions. So, I've skipped social mentalities. Um, <clears throat> now. So we've got, done a little bit about uh, on evolution, that evolution creates these motivational systems. We know these motivational systems are being tweaked in the environment in which they are maturing. And Now I want to talk to you a little bit about compassion for the dark side. <clears throat> because people get carried away with compassion. They think, oh, compassion is about love and being kind. That is really okay, but that is not what we're interested in in compassion-focused therapy. We're interested in compassion-focused therapy for how do we deal with the suffering, both those who are experiencing suffering and those who are creating it. Now, as was said before, <clears throat> evolution is a process, it's a tree, it's a focus, and so you can plot the changes in physical form and brain form over evolutionary time And as was said by Diana, there are things called constraints. okay? And there are things called trade-offs. Now, constraints means that you can't actually go back to the drawing board and start again. So your body was evolved in the sea. So your skeleton is basically designed for the sea. It works well in in the sea, but not so well standing up. Because all that weight has to go through your back. Most animals, most mammals are actually on all fours. uh, primates run, they tend to run on all fours, but we, in our wisdom, stood up because we had hands free and eyes free. And that's obviously... Now, from the skeletal point of view, this was a disaster for the women. Because if you watch chimpanzees run, they run like that, but women have their legs come together, and the birth canal narrows, right at the point <laughs> when the baby's head is evolving to get bigger, because we're getting intelligent, see? So this is a disaster. So what it means is that women, females, have the most dangerous and painful births of all primates. Okay, so it's extraordinary. So it's a trade-off. So the trade-off of having this uh, didn't do you any favors whatsoever. One One of the advantages of that, however, is that we suspect that that difficulty in childbirth also activated kin support. So kin support and childbirth, we know that in a number of communities, particularly where there is low levels of postnatal depression, um, relatives are very involved in the birth of the child. (coughs) Mothers and grandmothers and all that stuff. So that's kind of interesting. But that's an example of a trade-off. Now, your brain is full of this stuff. Your brain is full of these trade-offs, constraints and trade-offs. Your brain is not well designed. In fact, it's a a ropey old thing. You know, all the people say, oh, the miracle of design, isn't it wonderful, miracle of evolution. No, it's not a miracle. It's a bloody nightmare, to be honest. (laughs) (coughs) And the reason is because you have all of these modus, which we saw before, which are there, harm avoidance, food, sex, all that stuff, that you share with many other animals. But about two million years ago, maybe a little longer, a little less, we began to develop all of these qualities, which are quite extraordinary, and it was a runaway... Um, evolution, it was very, very fast, two million years. In evolutionary time, that is a rushed job, I can tell you. <clears throat> so you never see a chimpanzee monitoring themselves, taking their, oh my god, my pulse, it's so fast, I've got to have a heart attack, you know. <laughs> or looking into the lake thinking, God, have I put on weight, I mean, that's just terrible. Isn't it? <laughs> Whereas humans can monitor anything we can monitor our thoughts. We can monitor our ambitions. We can plan for the future. We have future thinking. We can monitor what I think you're thinking. We can be self-criticism, critical. <clears throat> All of these things which are quite extraordinary. We have language. and We also have a new form of consciousness. Now, this is something that is extremely interesting because this is what gives rise to what is called knowing intentionality. Now, knowing intentionality is something relatively new. A lot of people wonder, are we going to understand the nature of consciousness in biology? My own personal view is no, we won't. We'll understand it in physics. I don't think we're going to understand it in biology. What's becoming clearer and clearer is that consciousness is an issue that I think maybe we're going to have to understand how biology and, and the, the nature of the physical universe operates, but that's another story perhaps. The key for us, though, is to recognize that now that you've got this, this can set you up into loops. And these loops can do good things or very bad things. (laughs) So imagine a zebra getting away from a lion. What happens is once the zebra is away, then the arousal will go down. Once they can't see or hear or smell the lion, there is nothing to stimulate their threat system. But for humans, we have brought the stimulus inside the brain, which means that we can start ruminating, imagining the worst, self-criticizing. Can you imagine being caught by a lion? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine having your throat ripped out? Oh my god. <clears throat> what about tomorrow? Supposing there are two lions tomorrow. Oh, no, 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 Then I won't be able to get to the water hole, you know? So I'm going to either dehydrate or be eaten to death or so whatever. What on earth am I doing in this lion-infested country when I could be listening to Paul Gilbert in London? I mean, what a fool. I mean, it's just stupid, isn't it? I mean, so and we know, bless their hearts, that our clients get caught up in these loops. I'm a failure. I'm no good. The point of the future is hopeless. It's useless. It's hopeless. Now, if you're going to do that, right? once you have the loop, then the loop is going to stimulate these underlying physiological systems. Okay, And there's quite a lot of evidence that they do. So we have all of these motivational systems. Then you bring in this new brain competency of knowing awareness, empathic awareness, and then you can do this. We can be incredibly pro social, but we can be incredibly antisocial. Think of feeding behavior, for example. We are, we are one of the worst predators that have ever existed. I mean, our treatment of farm animals is just horrendous. It's just cruel. Something like 14 billion animals, I think I'm correct in saying, are slaughtered every year for us. 14 billion. Okay, and not always in the nicest of circumstances. So I wanted to say to you, look, uh, this is why the evolutionary story is such an important story, right? To understand how have we got to be the way we are? How does the brain work? What brings out the best and the worst in us? Because we know that our brains are potentially one of the nastiest pieces of work that have ever existed on this planet. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.